Chapter One of Dawn of the Morning. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barbara Hale. Dawn of the Morning by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter One. The morning hangs its signal upon the mountain's crest. While all the sleeping valleys in silent darkness rest, from peak to peak it flashes, it laughs along the sky, that the crowning day is coming by and by. We can see the rose of morning, a glory in the sky, and that splendor on the hilltops, or all the land shall lie. Above the generations, the lonely prophets rise, the truth flings dawn and day star within their glowing eyes. From heart to heart it brightens, it draweth ever nigh, till it crowneth all men thinking, by and by. The soul hath lifted moments above the drift of days, when life's great meaning breaketh, and sunrise on our ways. From hour to hour it haunts us, the vision draweth nigh, till it crowneth living, dying, by and by. And in the sunrise standing, our kindling hearts confess that no good thing is failure, no evil thing success. From age to age it groweth, that radiant faith is so high, and its crowning day is coming, by and by. In the year 1824, in a pleasant town located between Schenectady and Albany, stood the handsome colonial residence of Hamilton Van Rensselaer, Solemn hedges shut in the family pride and hid the family sorrow, and about the borders of its spacious gardens, where even the roses seemed subdued, there played a child. The stately house oppressed her, and she loved the somber garden best. Her only friend in the old house seemed a tall clock that stood on the stairs and told out the hours in the hopeless tone that was expected of a clock in such a house though it often took time to wink pleasantly at the child as she passed by, and talk off a few seconds and minutes in a brighter tone. But the great clock on the staircase ticked awesomely one morning as the little girl went slowly down to her father's study in response to his bidding. She did not want to go. She delayed her steps as much as possible and looked up at the old kindly clock for sympathy but even the round-eyed sun and the friendly moon that went around on the clock face every day as regularly as the real sun and moon and usually appeared to be bowing and smiling at her wore solemn expressions and seemed almost pale behind their highly painted countenances. The little girl shuddered as she gave one last look over her shoulder at them and passed into the dim recess of the black hall, where the light came only in weird, half-circular slants from the mullioned window over the front door. It was dreadful indeed when the jolly sun and the moon looked grave. She paused before the heavy door of the study and held her breath, dreading the ordeal that was to come. Then, gathering courage, she knocked timidly and heard her father's instant cold, Come. With trembling fingers, she turned the knob and went in. There were heavy damask curtains at the windows, reaching to the floor, caught back with thick silk cords and tassels. 
They were a deep, sullen red and filled the room with oppressive shadows, in no wise relieved by the heavy mahogany furniture upholstered in the same red damask. Her father sat by his ponderous desk, always littered with papers, which she must not touch. His sternly handsome face was forbidding. The very beauty of it was hateful to her. The look on it reminded her of that terrible day, now nearly three years ago, when he had returned from a journey of several months abroad in connection with some brilliant literary enterprise and had swept her lovely mother out of his life and home, the innocent victim of long-entertained jealousy and most unfounded suspicion. The little girl had been too young to understand what it was all about. When she cried for her, she was forbidden even to think of her and was told that her mother was unworthy of that name. The child had declared with angry tears and stampings of her foot that it was not true, that her mother was good and dear and beautiful, but they had paid no heed to her. The father had sternly commanded silence and sent her away, and the mother had not returned. So she had sobbed her heart out in the silence of her own room, where every object reminded her of her lost mother's touch and voice and presence, and had gone about the house in a sullen silence, unnatural to childhood, thereby making herself more enemies than friends. Of her father she was afraid. She shrank into terrified silence whenever he approached, scarcely answering his questions, and growing farther away from him every day, until he instinctively knew that she hated him for her mother's sake. When a year had passed, he procured a divorce without protest from the innocent but crushed wife. This by aid of a law that often places truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Not long after, he brought to his home as his wife a capable, arrogant, self-opinionated woman who set herself to rule him and his household as it should be ruled. The little girl was called to audience in the gloomy study where sat the new wife, her eyes filled with hostility toward the other woman's child, and was told that she must call the lady mother. Then the black eyes that held in their dreamy depths some of the gunpowder flash of her father's steely ones took fire. The little face darkened with indignant fury. The small foot came down with fierce determination on the thick carpet, and the child declared, I will never call her mother. She is not my mother. She is a bad woman, and she has no right here. She cannot be your wife. It is wicked for a man to have two wives. I know, for I heard Marianne and Betsy say so this morning in the kitchen. My mother is alive yet. She is at grandfather's. I heard Betsy say that, too. You are a wicked, cruel man, and I hate you. I will not have you for a father any more. I will go away and stay with my mother. She is good. You are bad. I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. And I hate her pointing toward the new wife, who sat in horrified condemnation with fiery, fiery spots upon her outraged cheeks. Jemima, thundered her father in his angriest tone, but the little girl turned upon him furiously. My name is not Jemima, she screamed. I will not let you call me so. My name is Dawn. My mother called me Dawn. 
I will not answer when you call me Jemima. Jemima, you may go to your room, commanded the father, standing up, white to the lips, to face a will no whit less adamant than his own. I will not go until you call me Dawn, she answered, her face turning white and stern, with sudden singular likeness to her father on its soft round outlines. She stood her ground until carried struggling upstairs and locked into her own room. Gradually she had cried her fury out and succumbed to the inevitable, creeping back as seldom as possible into the life of the house and spending the time with her own brooding thoughts and sad plays far in the depths of the box-bordered garden or shut into the quiet of her own room. To the new mother she never spoke unless she had to and never called her mother, though there were many struggles to compel her to do so. She never came when they called her Jemima, nor obeyed a command prefaced by that name, though she endured in consequence many a whipping and many a day in bed, fed on bread and water. What is the meaning of this strange whim, demanded the new wife, with set lips. Her position was none too easy, nor her disposition markedly that of a saint. A bit of her mother's sentimentality, explained the chagrined father. She objected to calling the child for my grandmother Jemima. She wanted it named for her own mother, and said Jemima was harsh and ugly, until one day her old minister, who was fully as sentimental as she, if he was an old man, told her that Jemima meant dawn of the morning. After that, she made no further protest, but I had no idea she had carried her foolishness to this extent, nor taught the child such notions about her honest and honorable name. It won't take long to get them out of her head, prophesied the newcomer with the sparkle of combat in her eye. Yet it was now nearly three years since the little girl had seen or heard from her mother, and she still refused to answer to the name of Jemima. The stepmother had fallen into the habit of saying you when she wanted anything done. Of the events which preceded her father's summons this morning, Dawn knew nothing. Three days before, he had received an urgent message from his former wife's father, stating that his daughter was dead and demanding an immediate interview. It was couched in such language, being the man he was, he could not refuse to comply. He answered the summons immediately, going by horseback, a hard six hours ride, that he might catch an earlier stage than he could otherwise have done. He was the kind of man that always did what he felt to be his duty, no matter how unpleasant it might be. It was the only thing that saved his severity from being a vice. His father-in-law had laid this journey upon him as a duty, and though he had no definite idea of the reason for this sudden demand, he went at once. No one but his maker can penetrate the soul of a man, like Hamilton Van Rensselaer, to know what were his thoughts as he walked up the rose-bordered path to the fine old brick house, which a few years before he had trod with his beautiful young bride leaning upon his arm. With grave ceremony, the old servant opened the door into the stately front room where most of Van Rensselaer's courting had been done and left him alone in the dim light that sifted through partly drawn shades. 
He stood a moment within the shadowed room, a sense of the past sweeping over him with oppressive force, like a power that might not be resisted. Then as his eyes grew accustomed to the half-darkness, he started, for there before him was a coffin. His father-in-law's message had not led him to expect to see his former wife. He had gathered from the letter that she might have been dead some weeks, and that the matter to be discussed was of business, though probably painfully connected with the one who was gone. While the news of her death had given him a shock, which he had not anticipated, he had yet had time in his long journey to grow accustomed to the thought of it. But he was in no wise prepared to meet the sight of her, lying there in her last sleep, so still and white. Strangely moved, he stepped nearer, not understanding why he felt thus toward one whom he firmly believed had made utter wreck of his life. She lay in a simple white gown, like the one she used to wear when he first knew her. In her hand was one white rose. It might have come from her wedding bouquet. The soft fragrance of it floated up and smote him with keen and unexpected pain. The rose had reached where a sword could not have penetrated. Death had kindly erased the deep lines of suffering from Mary Montgomery's beautiful face and told no tales of the broken heart. But to see what he had once loved, pure and lovely as it used to be, with no trace of the havoc he had wrought upon it, spoke louder to the conscience of the man than a sorrowful face could have done. For then he might have turned from her with a hardened heart, saying it was all her own fault, and she had got only what she deserved. But to see her thus was as if God's finger had touched her and exonerated her from all blame. The sight shook the very foundations of his belief in her disgrace. He was filled with conflicting emotions. He had not supposed that he could feel this way, for he had thought that his love for Mary was dead. Yet it had raised his honored head and given him one piercing look, while it had seemed to say to his heart, You are too late, you are too late. The sound of footsteps coming down the hall recalled him to himself. It came to him that this was what he had been brought here for, this dramatic effect of Mary's death, perhaps for revenge, perhaps to try to make him acknowledge that he had been in the wrong. He stiffened visibly and turned toward the door. His heart, so accustomed to the hardening process, grew adamant again, and he was ready with a haughty word to greet the father, but the dignity of the white-haired man who entered the room held him in check. Mr. Montgomery went over to the window, merely giving his visitor a grave bow in passing, and pushed up the heavy shades. The sunlight burst joyously in upon the solemnity of the room, unhindered by the sheer Muslim curtains, and flung its golden glory about the sweet face in the coffin, making a halo of light above the soft, dark waves of hair. The younger man's eyes were drawn irresistibly to look at her once more, and the sight startled him more than ever, for now she seemed like a crowned saint, whose irreproachable life was too sacred for him to come near. The old man came over and stood in the pathway of the light from the window, though not so as to hinder its falling on the dead face, and turned toward his former son-in-law. Then, and not till then, 
did the visitor notice that the old man held in his arms a beautiful boy between two and three years old. Proudly, the grandfather stood with the chubby arm around his neck and the dimpled fingers patting his cheek. The sunlight fell in a broad illumination over the head and face of the child, kindling into flame the masses of tumbled curls which showed the same rich mahogany tint that had always made Hamilton Van Rensselaer's head a distinguished mark in any company. The baby's eyes were a wonderful gray, which even now held flashes of steel, albeit flashes of fun and not of passion. As the man looked, they mirrored back his own startlingly. In the round baby cheeks were two dimples, strikingly placed, the counterpart of two that daring nature had triflingly set in the otherwise stern countenance of the man. The likeness was marvelous. In sheer astonishment, the man gazed at the child, and then as he looked, the baby frowned, and he saw his own face in miniature, identical even to the sternness which was the prevailing expression of his countenance. Suddenly the man felt that he stood before God and was being judged and rebuked for his treatment of the dead. The awful remorse that stung his soul burst forth in a single sentence, which was wrung from him by unseen force. Why did you never tell me? He flashed the rebuke at the old man, but the dark eyes under the heavy white brows only looked at him the more steadily and did not flinch, as if they would tell him to look to himself for an answer to his question. The steady gaze did its work. It was the nemesis before which his pride and self-esteem fell. His glance went from the righteous face of the old man to the pure and beautiful eyes of the boy, now frowning with disapproval, and he dropped into a chair with a groan. I have been wrong, he said, and bowed his head. The last atom of his pride rent away from him. There beside the dead, great scorching tears of bitterness found their way to his eyes, washing away the scales of blind conceit and bringing clearer vision. Mary Montgomery was vindicated in the eyes of the man who had wronged her. But the baby frowned and cried softly, Hush, bad man, you go away. You wake my pity mother. She sleep. The strong man shrank from the child's words as from a blow and looked up with almost a pleadingly on his unusually cold face. But the old man watched him sternly. Yes, it is enough. You may go. There is nothing more to be said. Now you understand. This is why I sent for you. It was her right. But, said the stricken man, and looked toward the sleeping one in the coffin, may I not wait until... You have no right, the old man answered sternly, and the young man turned away with a strange, wild feeling, tearing his throat like a sob. No, I have no right. Then, with a sudden movement, he turned toward the child as if he would claim something there, but the baby hid his face and clung to his grandfather's neck. I have no right, he said again. One last look he gave the sweet dead face, as though he would ask forgiveness, then turned and went on steadily from the room. The old father followed him silently, as though to complete some ceremony, and, closing the door softly behind him, spoke a few words of explanation, facts 
that had they been brought forth sooner, might have made all things different. It was Mary's wish that no word should be spoken in her vindication while she lived. If her husband could not trust what she had told him when he first came home, it mattered not to her what he believed. The hope of her life was crushed, but now that she was beyond further pain, and for the boy's sake, her father had sent for him that he might know these things before the wife he had wronged was laid to rest. Then Van Rensselaer felt himself dismissed, and with one last look at the huddled figure of his little son, who still kept his face hid, he went down the path again, his pride utterly crushed, his life a broken thing. After him echoed the sound of a baby's voice, Go away, bad man! And then the great oak door closed quickly behind him for the last time. He trod the streets of the village as in a nightmare, and knew not that there were those in his way who would have tarred and feathered him if it had not been for love of the honored dead and her family. Straight into the country he walked, to the next village, and knew not how far he had come. There he hired a horse and rode to the next stage route, and so, resting not even at night, he came to his home. But ever, on the way, he had been attended by a vision, on the left, a sweet-faced figure in a coffin, with one white rose whose perfume stifled him, and on the right, by a bright-haired boy, with eyes that pierced his very soul. And whether on horseback or by stage, in the company of others, or alone in a dreary woodland road, they were there on either hand, and he knew they would be, so while life for him should last. He reached home in the gray of the morning, that was to become a gray day, and sent up word that his little daughter should come down to his study when her early tasks were finished. He had not said a word to his wife as yet, though she had suspected where he was going when he told her that Mary Montgomery was dead. It lifted a great load from her shoulders to know that the other wife was no longer living. She had been going about these three days with almost a smile upon her hard countenance, and the little girl had no easy time of it with her father away. It was very still in the study after Dawn sat down in the straight-back chair opposite her father. She could hear the old clock tick solemnly, slowly. It said, Poor child, poor child, poor child, poor child, until the tears began to smart in her eyes. Her father sat with his elbow on the desk, and his handsome head bowed upon his hand. He did not raise his head when she entered. She began to wonder if he was asleep, and her heart beat with awe and dread. Nothing good had ever come to her out of these interviews in the study. Perhaps he was going to send her away, too, as he had sent her mother. Her little face hardened. Well, she would be glad to go. What if he should send her to her mother? Oh, that would be a joy. But he never would. She was a beautiful child as she sat there, palpitating with fear and hope. Her face was like her mother's, fair, with wild rose color, and eyes that were dark and dreamy, always looking out with longing and appeal. Her hair, like her father's, only in its tendency to curl, was fine and dark and fell upon the little troubled face. It had been the cause of many a contention between her and her stepmother, who wished to plait it smoothly into braids, which she considered the only neat way for a child's hair to be arranged. 
Failing in that, she had tried to cut it off, but the child had defended her curls so fiercely that they had finally let her alone. It was wonderful what care the little girl took of them herself, for it was no small task to keep such a head of hair well brushed. But Dawn could remember how her mother loved her curls, and she clung to them. When she lifted the dark lashes, there was a light in her eyes that made one thing of the dawn of day. Such eyes had her mother. At last Dawn looked up tremulously to her father, and he spoke. He did not look toward her, however, and his voice was cold and reserved. I have sent for you, my daughter. Dawn was glad he did not use the hateful name Jemima to tell you that your mother was a good woman. Of course, said the child, with rising color. I knew that all the time. Why did you ever say she wasn't? There was a terrible mistake made. The father's voice was shaken. It gave Dawn a curious feeling. Who made the mistake? she asked gravely. The room was very still while this arrow found its way into the father's heart. I did. His voice sounded hoarse. The little girl felt almost sorry for him. Oh, then you will bring her right back to us again and send this other woman away, won't you? Child, your mother is dead. Dawn's face went as white as death, and she sprang to her feet, clasping her hands in horror. Then you have killed her, she screamed. You have killed her, my beautiful mother? And with a wild cry, she flung herself upon the floor and broke into a passion of tears. The strong man wreathed in anguish as his little child set the mark of Cain upon his forehead. The outcry brought the stepmother, but neither noticed her as she entered and demanded the reason for this scene. She tried to pick the child up from the floor, but Dawn only beat her off with kicks and screams, and they finally went away and left her weeping there upon the floor. Her father took his hat and walked out into the woods. There he stayed for hours while the wife went about with set lips and a glint in her eye that boded no good for the child. Finally, the sobs grew less and less frequent, and the old clock in the hall could again be heard in her ears as she sobbed herself slowly to sleep. Poor child, poor child, poor child, poor child. It was after this that they sent her away to school. End of chapter 1